Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Mark Batterson. You can find us on national.cc or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On June 15, 2012, Nick Walenda walked a tightrope that was suspended over Niagara Falls. That 1,500-foot steel wire could not be stabilized, so it swayed back and forth, and it dipped 35 feet. So we had to walk downhill, then uphill, on a soaking wet wire that was six centimeters wide. Fun fact, uh, he carried his passport and presented it to border guards on the Canadian side. Now, Nick Walenda holds 11 world records, including a wire walk over the Grand Canyon, but Niagara Falls presented a unique challenge because it is an ecosystem unto itself. The waterfall produces a constant mist, and you've got 60-mile-an-hour updrafts and side drafts, not to mention the deafening sound of 600,000 gallons of water cannonballing 167 feet every second. Now, to prepare for that stunt, Nick Walenda used airboats to produce 90-mile-an-hour wind gusts, oh, and fire trucks to hose him down while he was on the wire. Somehow, some way, he pulled it off. In the words of Wikipedia... He slowly inched his way across the slippery wire, get this, praying and praising Jesus Christ as he went. Now, I'll be honest, I feel a little bit like Nick Walenda these days, whether it's racial tension or political polarization, it feels like we are on the high wire. And with the rise of cancel culture and shaming on social media, it is not easy keeping your emotional or relational or political balance. So how do we walk the wire? This weekend, we continue our series, Heaven on Earth. We are wire walking the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And I feel like chapter four is this tightrope over Niagara Falls. In the first half of Paul's epistle, uh, he describes this reality called the heavenly realm. This is where we establish our identity, chapter one, discover our destiny, chapter two, uh, exercise our authority in chapter three, and the second half of this letter uh, is about that heavenly realm becoming our earthly Reality. It is the key to unity in chapter four, maturity in chapter five, and finally security in chapter six. Now, let me zoom out wide angle lens. We live in a culture that politicizes almost everything, including masks, right? Not telling you anything I don't know that you don't know. But just as there is nothing that we don't politicize, I would suggest that there is nothing that the Apostle Paul does not theologize. And I love this word. To theologize is to treat things in 
theological terms. Listen, theology, it's a noun. It's the study of God. But we've got to turn that noun into a verb. In his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, kind of like that title, Eugene Cho says, cultural Christianity is held captive by our politics rather than our politics being informed and even transformed by our theology. And so let me ask a question up front. Are you filtering your political ideology through your biblical theology or are you filtering your biblical theology through your political ideology? Because there is another name for that, idolatry. This has huge ramifications. And so let, let me give you a simple example. If you subscribe to Darwinism, and by that, I, I mean the absence of an intelligent designer. I mean evolution by random chance. I mean survival of the fittest. There is no path to equality or morality or dignity. I mean, Darwin said it himself. Man with all of his noble qualities still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. I could not agree with anything less, okay? We are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. We are a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory in honor. We are created in the image of God, Ephesians 1. No, no, wait, wait a second, wait, wait a second. Pastor Mark, are you saying you don't believe in evolution? Gasp. Um, Listen, I am well aware that science is another one of those things that we have politicized, okay? This is not a commentary on that. And for the record, I subscribe to the same school as Albert Einstein. He said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Everyology is a branch of theology, And so let me go back to the original question with a little bit of nuance. I believe that the capacity to evolve is a testament to God's creative genius, no doubt. That said, I don't believe in macroevolution by random chance. For starters, it violates the second law of thermodynamics. In the words of Sir Fred Hoyle, he said, let's be scientifically honest. The probability of life arising to greater and greater complexity by chance through evolution is the same probability as having a tornado tear through a junkyard and form a Boeing 747 jetliner. By by the way, same guy who coined the phrase Big Bang. Now, the problem with Darwinism is not just cosmology. Teleologically, Darwinism is an ethical dead end if your starting point is the survival of the fittest. There is no argument against things like racism or infanticide or eugenics or imperialism. Why? Because it's the survival of the fittest. We have a very different cosmology, a very different teleology. Our starting point is Genesis 1.26. We are created in the image of God. We have a theology of dignity that underwrites the sanctity of life from womb to tomb. And so we don't politicize people. 
We theologize people. And that means we like, we, we love people that we don't like. Why? Because everyone is invaluable and irreplaceable. Why? Because everybody is stamped with the Imago Day. Long story short, what the Apostle Paul does in the second half of Ephesians is theologize things for this church. He tells them how to put kingdom principles into practice, how to shift the atmosphere, how to walk the wire praying and praising Jesus. Now, let me back up a little bit. We'll get a running start. And uh, if you have a Bible, uh, you can meet me in Ephesians 3. I should not do what I'm about to do. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. I'm gonna regret that. It was the lead single on the 1987 album by Belinda Carlisle, get this, Same name as our series, Heaven on Earth Couldn't Resist. Now, I'm not a musicologist, but that song supposedly contains one of the greatest key changes in music history. Not what I just did, the song itself, the original, okay? I might add, uh, pretty good theology. We fixate on heaven as some future destination. We get it backwards, No, no, no. Heaven is invading earth right here, right now. How? Well, when we love our enemies, when we bless those who curse us, when when we worship, uh, when when, when bodies are healed or relationships are reconciled, when we act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, when we exercise faith, hope, and love, heaven invades earth. Now, what does any of that have to do with Ephesians 3? Well, right before halftime, the Apostle Paul hits this Mariah Carey high note. In order to break glass with the human voice, you have to reach what is called resonant frequency. When a substance uh, encounters a frequency that matches it, the energy is absorbed rather than reflected but you have to reach an octave above middle C, you have to hit 556 hertz, and you have to turn up the volume to 105 decibels. Now, in my opinion, what happens at the end of Ephesians 3, Paul doesn't just break glass, he shatters the glass ceiling. Not a him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Does that not get you a little fired up? All things are possible. Nothing is impossible. It's our high note. It's our resonant frequency. May we absorb that this weekend. Then and only then. Are we ready to come out of this locker room and into the second half of Ephesians and begin to theologize? And so ready or not, here we go, verse one. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, I I love this. Paul is writing from a Roman 
prison. I've been in the prison cell where Paul is purported to have been. Not where you want to be, but Paul doesn't identify himself as a prisoner of Rome. No, he sees himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The Apostle Paul underscores four core convictions, four cardinal virtues. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is teaching the Ephesians how to walk the wire, how to live countercultural, how to be grace givers and peacemakers and tone setters, how to navigate racial tension and political polarization in their day, how to walk the Jesus way. And so what I wanna do this weekend with the Lord's help is to unpack these four cardinal virtues and we'll start with humility. I might encourage you to just grade yourself as we go. Now we have a core value. If you stay humble and stay hungry, nothing that God cannot do in you or through you. What I find fascinating is that in this original context, humility was not celebrated. Survey ancient Greek literature and pride is celebrated as the virtue. Humility is absolutely countercultural, and it still is. Now, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, okay? That's called false humility. It's thinking of yourself as anything less than who you are in Christ. We talked about our identity in chapter one. Do you remember these seven things? You're blessed, you're chosen, you're blameless, you're adopted, you're redeemed, you're sealed, you're stamped. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, said C.S. Lewis. It's thinking of yourself less, and that is a key distinction. In other words, it's not about you. Now, the more you make it about you, the bigger burden you have to bear and the harder it is to walk the wire. God gave us two ears, one mouth. Use them in that proportion. Now, I'm not sure who said that first, but let me push that envelope a little bit. I think humility is listening with your right ear and your left ear, a little play on politics right there, way too much binary thinking going on right now. When we think of problems in either or categories, it's hard to come up with both and solutions. True wisdom has two sides. Job eleven six. truth is found in the tension of opposites, but that takes tremendous humility. Now, Jesus was genius at this. In John 8, there's a man born blind, and the religious leaders frame it as a binary problem. They say, who sinned? His parents or him that he was born blind? It's gotta be A or B, right? Wrong. Jesus says, this happened so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. See, Jesus isn't just the way. Jesus is the third way. It's the ability to see, the ability to hear both sides. So critical right now with so many philosophies and ideologies and hashtags. We need a both and understanding. 
of critical race theory, of implicit bias, of identity politics, and of every other ism out there. We need to know the difference between nationalism and patriotism. We need to know how to define bigotry and misogyny. Words matter. And if your definition is wrong, the entire algorithm is off. And so we end up using words in the wrong way. And now we're politicizing instead of theologizing. And uh, I'm going to keep you hanging. We'll double back to a few of those next week. Now, the second virtue is gentleness. It's this Greek word, uh, proutes, and it means gentle strength. It's this divinely balanced, sorry, I'm watching Cobra Kai. It's this divinely balanced virtue, which brings us back to walking the wire. I recently read a book by Scott Sauls titled A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. No one wins a shouting match. I absolutely believe in radical candor. Another great book, by the way. But let me define it. Radical candor is two-dimensional. It's caring personally and challenging directly. And this is as old as John 1.14. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace means I'm gonna love you no matter what. It's caring personally. Truth means I'm gonna be honest with you no matter what. It's challenging directly. By definition, radical candor is speaking the truth in love. So much trolling and baiting and shaming on social media. We need to flip the script. How? I think it goes back to Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Words matter more than ever, but so does posture and tone. Now, a few weeks ago, Laura and I adopted a little puppy that we named Prunella. You wanna see a picture? She is awfully cute. She's 11 weeks old. She weighed four pounds when we picked her up. And uh, here's what I've learned in a few short weeks, okay? The average dog has the capacity to learn 165 words. Now, super dogs, the top 20% can learn up to 250 words. I have no idea where Nella is gonna end up on that bell curve, but right now, she does not respond to words. She responds to posture. She responds to to tone, come on, people are no different than puppies. It's the old aphorism. People don't know how much you, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so let's not win intellectual arguments while losing relationships because we would rather be right than righteous. Timothy Gombus says something so counterintuitive in his brilliant book on Ephesians. He says, the church has its greatest relevance to the world when it is most unlike the world in its corrupted forms. Love that. 
Now, we talk a lot about operating in the opposite spirit. When you encounter pride, operate in a spirit of humility. When, when you encounter hatred, operate in a spirit of love. When you encounter fear, operate in a spirit of faith. That is how we walk the wire. That is how heaven invades earth. Now, let me make an application right here. Average person spends 142 minutes on social media every day. That represents 15% of our waking hours. And I'm looking at you. Some of you are above average, okay? And so Marshall McLuhan said, we shape our tools, and thereafter, our tools shape us. And this is especially true of technology. So many studies. In fact, this week I was reading a study about trolling, when it happens, why it happens. And it's crazy. I mean, they have this thing down to a science. Now, I want to highly recommend a documentary. Laura and I watched it a few weeks ago, The Social Dilemma. Identifies five dangers. Objectification, radicalization, racialization, polarization, and commodification. Bottom line, a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of tokenism, a lot of canceling, and we need to operate in the opposite spirit in that space. Third virtue is patience. Uh, let me paint a picture. A few weeks ago, watched a documentary about a man named uh, Jadev Payeng, lives on the island of Majuli, uh, which has lost half of its landmass since 1917. Every year, monsoon season floods the Brahmaputra River and it's eroding the island at this alarming Right. And so in 1979, uh, Jadev Payeng started planting trees and, and he never stopped. 40 years later, his forest is larger than Central Park in New York City. His reforestation efforts have not only slowed the erosion, but it has repopulated species of animals that had almost gone extinct. In fact, there's a herd of elephants living in his forest. When I watch the news, it kind of feels like monsoon season. The erosion caused by sin and suffering is overwhelming at times. It can feel helpless and hopeless. Can I exhort us this weekend do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 7. God cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. Two verses later, do not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest. Don't let what you cannot do keep you from doing what you can. Come on, let's plant those trees of grace. Let's plant those trees a piece. Do you know what Noah did when God gave him a vision to build a very big boat? According to the Talmud, the very first thing he did was plant trees. Why? Because he knew he would need a lot of planks to build that boat, and he knew that those trees would take 40 years to mature. That is patience. Patience is long obedience in the same direction. P patience is playing the long game. Patience is putting things into eternal perspective. And this is where we really struggle, especially because of where we live. We, we, we have these four-year election cycles, okay? 
But, but God's vision is so much bigger and better and longer. And so we tend to think right here, right now, God is thinking nations and generations. Can I remind us, we're not just trying to build a church. We're trying to bless a city to the third and fourth generation. We're trying to do things that'll make a difference 70 years from now. But, but I'm gonna make a little confession, okay? I won't tell you which election, but there was an election that I may have shed some tears. Elections are emotional. And I might add, elections are important. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Politics matter because policy matters because people matter. We are not a direct democracy where everyone votes on every issue. We've got 100 senators, 435 representatives, and uh, nine Supreme Court justices, I guess technically eight right now. We are a constitutional republic, which means we vote for people who vote for us. And there's a lot riding on every election, but we also have to keep it in perspective. Administrations come and go. Our primary citizenship is in this thing called the kingdom of God. And the last time I checked, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ. And so what I'm preaching is, maybe I would call it urgent patience. Okay, there are things that, man, may the Holy Spirit activate his gifts in our lives. There, there. Listen, inaction is an action. Indecision is a decision. Sometimes silence is a sin. And so I'm not saying sit back and wait, but I can guarantee you this, it's gonna take a lot longer than you think. We overestimate what we can do in a year or two. We underestimate what God can do in 10 or 20 or 70. All right, let me touch on tolerance. This one's tricky. Because we live in a culture that says it values Tolerance, but not really. If you dare disagree with the cultural narrative, if you use the wrong phrase, if you refuse to compromise your biblical convictions, there is no tolerance whatsoever. It's called cancel culture. And so what's interesting is that we live in a culture that espouses tolerance, but I don't think they know what it means. There is a biblical concept here. Now, part of what makes it tricky is that there's a sin of toleration in Revelation chapter 2, but Paul puts a very positive spin on this idea, and so I want to be very careful. Let me tell you what biblical tolerance is not. It's not putting a stamp of approval on anything and everything, okay? That's called relativism. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. That is circular reasoning at best. Tolerance is not compromising your biblical convictions. Let, let me tell you what it is. I think tolerance is giving people the same measure of free will that God gave you. It's allowing people their opinion. You know, I have some guiding principles. You, you've heard me say these things all the time. As soon as I'm omniscient, I'll let you know, but I would not hold your breath. And now part of what I'm saying there is I reserve the right to get smarter. Um, I love this one, Oswald Chambers. Let God be as original with others as he was with you. 
And then um, I might throw one more in for good measure. I read this one when I was 22. I think it was in How to Win Friends, Influence People. It might be in Emerson. He said, every person is my superior in some way. In that, I learn of them. And so I think tolerance is this unique position where it's so tiring playing God in someone else's life. At the end of the day, you've got to give a little bit of latitude. Now, in our early days, we had a cabinet member uh, who was a part of this church, and, and I love the way he said it. He said, it's against my religion to impose my religion on anyone else. Now, that's in keeping with what our founders envisioned. They didn't advocate freedom from religion, which, which is the mistake that so many secularists make. Our founders believe that our democracy was only as good as the morals that undergirded it. It's called the Establishment Clause. The government does not pr promote or inhibit the free exercise thereof. And we might unpack that a little bit more next week. Let me try to land this plane. I'm guessing that I've said a thing or two or three that have made you go, hmm. You're trying to figure out where I land on a couple of issues or maybe even who I'm going to vote for. Can I remind us? We are nonpartisan as a church. And what that means is this, that we don't identify or align ourselves with a particular political party or a particular candidate. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't take a stand on issues. If the Bible says something, silence is a sin. And so that said, we've tried very hard over the years to walk the wire by reaching across the aisle. But I'm gonna shoot straight. It's a little bit harder now than it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 24 years ago. But we add a little addendum to Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Republican nor Democrat. Blood is thicker than water. We are the family of God. And again, I don't wanna give the impressions that politics are not important. They are. Uh, we honor those who serve in the public square. I think it's a high calling. Uh, but let me share the preamble to our core uh, beliefs. 400 years ago, a guy named Rupertus Maldenius said this, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, we apply that to theology. I wonder if we could apply that to politics as well. I think tolerance is giving a little latitude on things that the Bible would call disputable matters. It's our four principles of peacemaking, Ask anything, listen well, disagree freely, love regardless. And so we started with that high note, right? Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able. Let me end with middle C, which is Ephesians 4.3. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, unity is corporate humility, and it doesn't happen by default. It happens by design. It has to be discipled. Did you know that we have 28 small groups focused on racial reconciliation this fall? Why? Because this is something that has to be discipled. Our vision, okay, is is diversity, but a unity that comes out of that 
turning into this beloved community that God calls the church. And it takes some blood, sweat, and tears. Dr. King uh, said this, I'll give him the last word, said there was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in those days. The church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. May God help us to be just that. There is one body, one spirit, one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And that makes us black and white, Asian and Latino, Native American, Pacific Island. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we take a posture of humility. We take a tone of gentleness. We exercise patience and tolerance. And as we do, we believe and we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.